Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's podcast. Today we are talking to Professor Jerry Mackay and Professor Mackay has a lot of interests which we're hopefully going to uh, find out a little bit of information around and I thought it would probably be best, uh, Professor Mackay, if you actually introduce yourself and tell us exactly what your interests are. Okay, thanks for asking me to do this. Um, I'm a specialist in clinical pharmacology and therapeutics in general internal medicine, which basically means I can be what I want to be, depending on which day of the week. Um, I'm particularly interested in um, front door medicine. I do some sessional commitment to acute medicine, um, although this has become less over the years. I also have outpatient commitments to the diabetes service, and I have an interest in all aspects of prescribing, both front door and and beyond. Fantastic, and thank you very much. So there's actually lots of areas that we could gain some insight into. So why don't we start with diabetes, um, if that's okay. So are there any particular kind of areas um, or any particular developments in the management of diabetic emergencies that, that you would like to share with us? Can we talk about the management of DKA in the first instance? Of course, yeah. Um, I think there has been a lot of positive um, developments in the management of DKA um, in recent years. This is a condition, of course, that still has a significant amount of morbidity and mortality attached to it, particularly in um, people who re- present with recurrent episodes of DKA. They are, they are at a particular risk. There was a nice study done by colleagues in Edinburgh recently looking at a kind of retrospective cohort, and it's people who are socially deprived who come in with the baseline haemoglobin A1C um, very high and who are recurrent attenders. And the mortality of that group is almost 25% over a period of follow-up and it, it really is it's, I think the local development of protocols certainly um, within NHS trusts and in our case in Scotland NHS Scotland um, has meant that people have been effectively guided down a pathway of uh, of, of management that, that has meant that you know people are being diagnosed appropriately and uh, are being treated appropriately, which is, uh, I think, uh, very good. Certainly our local um, auditing of the um, adherence to the diabetic ketoacidosis protocol is of the order greater than 90%, which is which is really good and I think will um, almost certainly be impacting upon the morbidity and mortality uh, of this condition. So how strict are the criteria for diagnosing DKA? In my understanding, it's BM above 11, bicarb below 15, and, and the presence of ketones. And sometimes you see people who seem to be heading that direction, but maybe don't quite match those criteria very strictly. And we often maybe assume, oh, maybe they're just on an early progression to full-blown DKA, and often we might start treatment even before they meet the strict criteria. Is that wrong? No. I think um, in certain circumstances, clinical judgment needs to be um, used in terms of deciding what you think is um, happening. I think the DKA protocols that have been developed are good in that they almost certainly pick up people who have an underlying acidosis as a consequence of um, lack of insulin and, and the production of ketones. I think previously in my experience, I've seen um, a number of circumstances whereby people are diagnosed and treated as DKA, but in actual fact, um, they don't actually have DKA. They have acidosis for another reason. I can think of one case which we wrote up as a as a, a clinical case for one of the journals, whereby um, a, a young girl was admitted three times with 
in inverted commas, diabetic ketoacidosis. And in actual fact, it was in the third admission, there was a realisation that at no point did she actually have enough ketones in the preceding admissions, and what she had was uh, renal tubular acidosis. And the treatment was different, because the treatment then was actually given her bicarbonate replacement. So I think we, we, I think the new protocols um, at least are guiding the, the clinician into making the correct diagnosis you know, at, at, at the outset. And if you think it is somebody who's maybe perhaps going to um, develop um, full-blown diabetic acidosis, then treating early might not be such a bad thing to do. And is there any aspects of the DK protocol that we maybe don't do so well, or, or are you fairly satisfied that we seem to, to be sticking to it well and, and doing it appropriately? I think one of the things that we don't do generally across the board um, in terms of managing patients is, is think about what happens next, thinking about the next day. Um, at the point of, of admission or, or initial assessment. So for DKA specifically, one of the things that sometimes holds up discharge is the fact that their background insulin is not continued. I think in our local protocol, we um, ensure that background insulins continue to be prescribed irrespective of what intravenous treatment they're getting. And that means that when we go from IV to subcutaneous switch, then it can be done much more uh, efficiently. Okay, so just to be clear, check if the patient's on a long-acting insulin and ensure that they get the same dose at the same time, even though they're on the DKA protocol. Absolutely. Okay, fantastic. And can I ask you about cerebral edema? I don't know that I've ever seen it. Um, And often you'll see, you know, know, patients with reasonably significant high, um, you know, uh, acid levels, maybe slightly altered consciousness, maybe complaining of a headache. Um, and it's crossed my mind at times, you know, could this be and, and how would I know and, and does it change my management at all? Um, so how often do you see cerebral edema and is there any way of knowing what is just, you know, being slightly ultraconscious due to the acid-base disturbance and what is actually would, would merit a, a consideration of cerebral edema? Okay, I think um, um, in reality, my own experience, I audited this as a trainee many years ago, um, was that cerebral edema is something that's mainly or more often seen in the paediatric population. And I think their fluid uh, management is far more complex uh, than the management of an adult patient. Um, I would have thought that uh, really the management of the biochemistry and patient's conscious level would dictate whether cerebral edema is a, a feature in and. I think if, um, you would need to have significantly altered biochemistry, perhaps require an ITU um, involvement before you actually see cerebral edema. Certainly in my experience, I haven't seen it very often. So if you don't mind, I was going to ask you a little bit about something I find a little bit challenging in emergency medicine, and that is what to do with the hyperglycemic patient who's well. So this sometimes crops up from time to time, and it often seems to happen out of hours. And we're never quite, I don't feel I'm confident in knowing exactly always what the right thing to do um, for, for each patient. So I'm just going to give you a few different scenarios and see what you would do in that situation. So we're out of hours. Let's say it's a Friday evening at six o'clock. Day staff have left. There's no diabetic teams around. There is a medical registrar we can speak to if we need to. So we have, a, a, a let's say, a gentleman comes in for a completely separate reason. And we find coincidentally that he's got a blood sugar of 20. He's well. He's got no acid-base disturbance, no ketones in his urine. And as I say, it's for a completely separate reason he's there. What should we do in that situation? Okay, I, I think with this particular patient, um, the feel I get is that it's somebody who you'll, you'll probably want to get home 
I think the key to the management is is to do uh, even just a, a brief kind of diagnostic workup. Is this, as you probably um, would suspect, definitely type two diabetes? More likely, if he's not ketotic. Um, so, a careful history, presenting complaint, you know, including that kind of dietary history, lifestyle history would be important in terms of your initial advice. Because I think we need to at least, if we're planning to get him home, should give him some uh, initial advice with regard to how he's come to have a high blood glucose and how he might manage it. We might want to put it in the context of his past medical history. Is there anything else he's on? or perhaps steroids, for example. Is there any other cardiovascular risk factors? How old's the patient? You know, has he got a family history? Is he a smoker? Does he drink alcohol? There's lots of things that maybe we can uh, we can ask about, even in the acute setting, if we're going to just at least get the, 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 the management started. And I would have thought of doing that and then, you know, ensuring that there's no um, abnormal physiological parameters that you, um, you are concerned about may get him home with some fairly basic dietary advice. You may find out in actual fact that he has been thirsty and he's been taking lots of, you know, um, fizzy drinks with full, full fat and sugar and whatever, and um, and maybe even just cutting that out is enough in the first instance. But I would ensure that um, if you were to send him home that you give him some uh, clear advice as to when to return if things don't go as planned. But also, I think you need to be very specific either through the individual patient himself or by uh, contacting the GP or making it clear in the documentation to the GP that this is somebody that really needs a, a proper workup. And if you're wanting to help the GP, I think even doing a, a baseline hemoglobin A1C before they go so that then when they go to the GP, that result might be available. What would be helpful? And would there be a blood sugar that would be deemed too high to discharge? The patient's still well, all parameters normal, everything normal, asymptomatic. Say the blood sugar was 30 or 35. Would there ever be a time that you think it's probably better to keep this patient in for a kind of earlier assessment and, and, and intervention? I think that needs to be on an individual patient basis and using judgment and, and a clinical experience. For example, I was uh, called the other day by one of our diabetes specialist nurses to advise about a patient who um, a lab glucose had come back from their attendance at a clinic of 32. And the diabetes specialist nurse said, what do I do with this patient? Now, this patient at that point in time was actually at his work. And the question then is, well, what do we do? Um, my take on it was that this was somebody who also had, um, as we knew from his lab results, worsening renal impairment. And my concern was that he'd become dehydrated. So rather than say, I need this patient admitted, my take on it was that this patient needs to be in a place where we can assess him more formally. And I advised the, um, the nurse to contact the gentleman and bring him up to our acute assessment unit. Now that was for assessment not necessarily admission. And it may well be that, you know, repeating the bloods or uh, the um, acute and chronic kidney um, impairment might not be quite as bad as, as we initially feared and it may well be that the glucose has settled down. This was somebody with an established uh, diagnosis of type 1 diabetes and nephropathy. So um, we'd probably need um, more specialist input, but certainly need to be a place where we can assess them. So if you were in your ED department, uh, there's so much more um, information that's required on an individual patient basis to make your decision as to whether you get them home. And if it just comes down to managing a blood glucose and not actually managing the context of the patient, we've kind of lost the, 
we've lost the, the plot a wee bit, I think. You know, I think we, we get a bit panicky about numbers uh, and we forget just to go back and ask some questions. Uh, and it may be, if in doubt, a short period of just even observation. If they're a wee bit clinically dry, even if not biochemically dry, maybe a wee bag of IV fluids, you know, simple measures like that, it might mean a kind of short-term fix and then um, appropriate for referral home as, as you see fit. And I'm going to <clears throat> annoyingly push you a little bit further. <laughs> say everything was normal. Say they were clinically hydrated. Say we gave them a bag of fluids, their kidney function was okay. We literally could not find anything, you know, that, that would explain this, but clearly needed further investigation. On a Friday evening, would it be safe to, to still discharge that patient with advice on diet, with some worsening advice? Could that wait until a GP appointment on the Monday? Is this a, a new patient? This is a new patient, a yes. new patient. I'd be concerned about discharging with a glucose of that level that hasn't come down. Um, if there's no obvious cause, if if it's if there's clearly dietary indiscretion that you could you you know will make a difference, then that's fine. If there's not that clear signal, um, then I would be thinking that this individual probably needs insulin, even short term, even if they're not ketotic, because that's a glucose level that's very very high, and we know that hyperglycemia itself is fairly kind of toxic to the pancreas, and uh, if we treat it, then often we find that the insulin secretion improves with time. So could I give a bag of fluids, give it an hour, see if there's certainly a trend downwards and, and kind of make a decision then? I think that's not unreasonable. But again, putting in the context of the individual patient, because one um, you know, fix doesn't, doesn't mend all. OK, well, let's, let's try subtly different, um, similar kind of time of, of the week. Um, this time it's a, it's a known type 2 diabetic. <clears throat> so they're on metformin, let's say. And they come in, again, for a coincidental reason. Um, again, they seem well. Again, their numbers are normal. Um, but their blood sugar, say, is is 30. Um, would there be any differences in this situation? They have a diagnosis. They are on treatment. Is there any subtle things that we could do differently to facilitate discharge? Or, or, or what would be the right thing to do? I think with the blood glucose level of 30, I'd be surprised if the patient didn't have symptoms, to be honest. Um, I'd be certainly pushing them to and be very specific in my question. I think even if they're not biochemically dry, they're almost certainly feeling dry. Um, and in those circumstances, you know, with a blood glucose of 30, I may be inclined to even admit them or, or keep them for a short period of time. I would have a low threshold just to give them some fluids, even just a couple of bags of intravenous fluids if there's no contraindication to that. I'd be keen to explore whether they're actually um, sticking to the diabetes dietary kind of guidance um, I'd be keen to see what medication they're on whether there's any easy fixes in terms of dose escalation all those medications for example you know metformin if they're on just one tablet a day there may be a scope to, to increase that um, but I think you know if we observed them for a short period gave some fluids they're otherwise well the blood glucose level in terms of the capillary monitoring it suggests a kind of downward trend um, I would be happy probably to let them away but um, I would advise that the main thing, though, is to ensure that if you are letting them away, they go away with some advice with regard to what to do if they become more unwell or, you know, the, there's a need to return um, and also to ensure that um, adequate follow-up is in place. If, for example, their next routine diabetes clinic appointment is not to six months' time, that's probably too far off in the, the distance and maybe it's a, an opportunity just to flag up the presentation to the ED department to the, the necessary person 
whether that's the GP that's looking after the diabetes or the or the specialist. And finally, for the type one diabetic, would 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 that same kind of set of principles apply, or would we be thinking slightly differently for them? Um, type one uh, diabetes is um, uh, different in some respects. In some ways, it's easier because it's generally speaking only one drug we have to think about. Um, obviously given in different ways, but in some ways it's more it's more difficult. If somebody's come in and they're well and this has just been found to be high, um, uh, there is no reason why that can't be treated as an outpatient, depending on the individual patient, because, of course, you could have somebody who's relatively newly diagnosed, lacks confidence and dose adjustment, and would be keen to see what type of insulin regimen they're on. You could be on a fairly, fairly straightforward basal bolus where uh, an adjustment to the background or, or, and or mealtime insulin might be easily um, done by uh, an ED physician uh, pending further follow-up. Um, I'd want to make sure that the individual was actually taking their insulin because the most likely reason for coming in with hyperglycemia um, is, is not just t- not taking enough insulin or, not, or missing doses or whatever. So I'd be keen to explore that. And, and also the, um, the individual's own... Um, confidence in managing their diabetes, where, where are they at with things? And of course there's a variety of different type of patients that have type 1 diabetes in that some will be on old-fashioned mixed insulins, less so nowadays. Lots of them will be on basal bolus regimens, lots of them will have completed structured education. So we'll be able to dose adjust um, according to their blood glucose levels. So in actual fact, that they actually might know more about it than the the, the ED physician who is uh, thinking about that question of what they should do. And of course nowadays there's many more um, to take patients with type 1 diabetes or individuals with type 1 diabetes I should say on um, insulin pumps and that becomes a far more kind of complicated specialist sort of kind of area. I think at the end of the day if somebody's got a clearly defined problem and you think actually there's an easy wee tweak here that we can do and get them home with their own team to follow up then that's all well and good. All these type 1 patients will be under secondary care or should be under secondary care or at least be able to get contact details for secondary care and the next available opportunity can phone up and speak to the specialist nurses. Um, however, if you are any doubt at all then I would always have a kind of low threshold just to admit. So I have a patient who's maybe not as confident with uh, adjusting the dose and they ask me for advice. What, what should I do with, my, with my, my dose of insulin? Do you have a set kind of guide? Is it a certain percentage increase or decrease of, of what they're taking or, or how do you generally advise on that? I always um, recommend cautious dose adjustment. It also has to be put in the context of the individual. If they're on very small doses of insulin, the concern would be that you, you, um, you, you make an adjustment that's too too big and you end up getting problems with hypoglycemia you also need to be seeing um, the blood glucose profile so we have somebody come into clinic and they aren't recording their blood glucose levels then really you're not really in a, you're not in a position to, to make any sort of sensible suggestions um, so when the question first of all is do they need more background insulin and that generally speaking is based on their fasting blood glucose in the morning uh, and do they need any more um, mealtime insulin and that will be dependent on what their blood glucose profiles are like during the day um, and whether or not they've been taught to use correction doses and, and, and like but generally speaking I would have thought that, that you know if you're going to make mild or modest adjustments it would be in increments of two two up two down in this case it'd be two up wouldn't it if you think of one particular dose of insulin is not enough, then to be more meal time, then small, small rises and then encourage them to monitor the response is the key. 
So is there anything we should know about um, that's likely to change in the management of diabetes in, in the near future that might affect us in the emergency department? I think um, the emergence of many more um, therapeutic agents for the treatment of uh, diabetes is, uh, is is going to make things much more complicated for um, for all healthcare providers, to be honest, with these patients. Um, specifically, there's two new um, classes of drugs that, um, on the basis of large cardiovascular outcome studies, are now going to be used much more commonly. Um, one of these drugs is called empagliflozin, but it's, it's, there's two other um, members of that family, the SGLT2 inhibitors. Now, these, I think, ED physicians need to be aware of because there is a um, association with the development of DKA with these agents in patients with type 2 diabetes. Um, the recognition that it's DKA um, clearly um, is, is um, you know, the same irrespective of, of your patient. You know, you'll be looking for your acidosis, your ketones and, and the like. Um, but if they're on this drug, they clearly should have the drug stopped. Um, another class of drugs that are out there is an injectable class called GLP-1 agonist, of which the most commonly prescribed one is laraglutide. Um, and uh, they appear to be relatively safe um, in terms of their uh, administration and, and side effects. So probably won't, um, uh, you know, result in increased ED um, presentations. But certainly a drug that people should be familiar with. So can I just clarify there that the first one that you mentioned there? So if they come in, they've got uh, DKA, same treatment and protocols apply, but you stop their drug. You stop Is the that drug. right? Absolutely. Stop it. And then when would you instigate it again or reintroduce it again? Would that would be a reason to, to change to a different class if, if abs- DKA abs- happens? Abs- absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I think we're increasingly recognising that um, DKA is or ketosis-prone type 2 diabetes as an entity. And this class of drugs has certainly been shown to uh, unmask that. And what are the advantages of this drug? Why? What, 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 what is it contributing that, that the current kind of drugs... Uh, don't do as well? Um, generally speaking, they work in a non pancreas dependent way. They make you uh, pass uh, somewhere in the region of 300 kilocalories out in your urine by stopping glucose reabsorption. Um, and as such, they're associated with weight loss, so patients like them, like that drug. Um, it's um, also less likely to cause hypoglycemia. Um, certainly, it shouldn't cause hypoglycemia prescribed. Uh, with, say, for example, metformin. And um, the biggest benefit and the reason why we're seeing much more prescribed is the um, the cardiovascular outcome trial in patients who have known cardiovascular disease. It's been shown to improve prognosis in a similar degree of, of uh, significance as, for example, statins. So you are actually a professor of clinical pharmacology, is that right? Just to add to all your expertise. Yeah, I do like my drugs. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave it there. Um, so, do you mind? Um, there, there's, I just wanted to pick out a few little tips and pearls. If there, if there was any that you thought with regards the management and treatment of kind of tox cases in the emergency department. Um, well, in a past life, I was on call for the National Poison Service. Um, going back twenty years ago, and the thing that really um, has impressed me over the years is how. Talkspace has developed from back then being a CD-ROM and a laptop that the registrar would carry about and take phone calls on to being this kind of fairly easily accessible um, database that has developed over the years to give 
very clear information on what um, a, a likely, you know, poison or, or, or medication might do uh, in an overdose setting, and also quite clear indication as to what, even if it's only supportive treatment or observation, uh, management requires to be um, initiated. In, in recent times, I've been asked on a few occasions to provide expert um, evidence on fatalities and overdose and in both the occasions what was clear from the documentation and the notes was that the individuals managing the patients referred to talk space in one of the cases printed out talk space but in both cases didn't actually follow the advice in talk space and that was quite clearly key to or, you know the the management being suboptimal Pr- print it out follow it and even in what we often think of as, as minor overdoses, straightforward paracetamol doses. Print it off, put the cross on the, the nomogram as to where you think the um, the level should be interpreted. Clear the documenting notes, whether they're for treatment or not. And then ju- and just you, you won't go far wrong. And it just gets you into the habit of doing it. Can I ask you about prescribing in the ED? <clears throat> what are the most common prescribing errors that you've seen in the acute setting? And how can we avoid them? I think a couple of things. One is that um, depending where you are, one frustration is often we don't know whether they've actually been given a treatment in uh, ED because the where the prescription is written can be on different um, different places. So that sometimes is, is difficult to untangle once the patient comes under our care in the acute medical wards. Um, the other general thing I think is that we have... A culture, I think, nowadays of of not wanting to miss anything, and I think there's a real danger. Not so much the uh, about the pres- the actual act of prescribing itself, is that we actually give treatment uh, rather than not, um, because we, we we have a fear of missing things. And I guess um, one of the examples would be in the management of chest pain, where I, I still think we we overtreat um, acute coronary syndrome at times and. Perhaps the admitting physician, uh, ED or otherwise, um, doesn't actually appreciate or that drugs can also cause harm as well as cause potential benefit. So, I've you know, an example would be things like ticagrelor, for example, in, a, in an, an octogenarian who's got some chest pain. In actual fact, you know, when you go back and, and take the history, it's quite clearly it's probably not ACS. And in actual fact, the old ECG changes are probably not relevant and, uh, you know, I suppose now with the, the early use of a, a rule in Trompton might help in that particular circumstance but I still think there's a, a danger of people just desperate to go into a pathway because once they're on a pathway they're in a comfort zone. And it feels good to do something. So when I you're get, prescribing something and doing something it feels like you're being a doctor but it might at times be, be better yeah. to be more cautious and thoughtful in, in what you do. And, and understand that in actual fact um, drugs can equally cause harm as well as benefit. Okay, so we're nearing the end. We always finish with one absolute final question. That's my question, which I generally ask everyone, if that's okay. So the question is, if you could go back in time and speak to your junior self just starting out in their career, one or two things, um, pearls of wisdom, they could be clinical or non-clinical, what things have you gained in your experience that you think would have been of value to you starting out as a junior? I, I think I'd be, from a clinical point of view, I would be telling myself that medicine's actually not that hard. 
It's all about ensuring that you have a structured approach. Careful history, careful examination, appropriate investigations, all geared to make a diagnosis because that's what we're here for as, as doctors. Um, we don't have to get bogged down with, with knowledge because treatments, um, algorithms will always evolve, usually slowly. But I think the approach to it as you gain experience is all about a structured approach. And I think it took me quite a few years to realise that. But that's something I'm forever going to our um, students and junior doctors about. You know, if you've got a structure there, if something, it allows you to build up the experience. Common things are common and you'll become quite familiar with them quite quickly. And when something doesn't quite fit, it's usually because it doesn't quite fit and that deserves more thought. And I think people get bogged down in thinking about things they don't have to think about. Any little non-clinical pearls that have served you well in your time? I think the non-clinical peril that I would give to folk is that from a very early stage in your career, um, you have to deal with lots of different colleagues, some of whom perhaps you might not um, like particularly much, who, who maybe are rude, um, always smile, always uh, just take it in the chin at times, although take up for yourself when, uh, when appropriate. But um, the, it's mainly for people who um, are guilty of being a wee bit off-hand or abrupt with, with colleagues is that at some point, almost certainly, medicine is a small world, your paths will cross again. And what you want to do is 20 years down the line actually think, that guy that was the, um, the, you know, the, the young um, kind of cheeky wee SHO, as it was back then, is now the, the consultant neurosurgeon I'm reading a favour for. Yeah. Um, and I was nice to him back then, and he probably remembers that. Fantastic. Well, look, I think we'll leave it there, if that's okay. Any any last parting words of wisdom? I don't think we can add much beyond what you've just told us there now, but any any little last parting gifts for us? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Jerry okay. McKay, thank you very much. It's been an absolute okay. pleasure. Okay, thank you. So many thanks to Professor Jerry McKay for his time today. I think my main take-home points were, number one, remember to always check for ketones. There have been cases of presumed DKA that were actually acidosis due to other reasons. Number two, remember to continue background insulin at the same dose and time when on a DKA protocol. Number three, for cases of coincidental hyperglycemia or newly diagnosed diabetes in the emergency department, remember to take a complete history. Check for any explainable cause, often dietary and advise them appropriately. Ensure no biochemical or physiological abnormality. Checking HbA1c is useful for the GP. And if they're dehydrated, give them some IV fluids and ideally watch for a trend downwards in the blood sugar. And they could be considered for discharge if everything appears normal and there is a trend of improvement. But remember to give them good worsening advice and appropriate follow-up with the GP for a proper workup. But remember, if in doubt, probably best to admit for a short period of observation and work up in the hospital. Number four, for diabetics with high sugars but no physiological or biochemical abnormality, check they are sticking to an appropriate diet and taking their medications as prescribed. They're likely to be dehydrated, particularly with high blood sugars, so give IV fluids and check for a downward trend. You could consider small adjustments to their medications. If they're on insulin, you could increase their dose by two units. But if no explainable cause, 
and the blood sugar is not trending downwards with IV fluids, then it would be best to admit these patients. And finally, SGLT2 inhibitors are likely to become more commonplace with type 2 diabetes, but we should be aware that they can give rise to DKA in type 2 diabetics, so stop them when instigating DKA protocols, and then they will need to switch to a different class of drug. Many thanks again to Professor Jerry McKay. Many thanks to you for listening, and take care.